0: This is a story that begins with a lone singer. He recorded original songs on cassette tapes for the author a long time ago. She remembers listening to the songs in her mama's white cutlass supreme out at the edge of town where abandoned things made her wonder. We're talking with author J.C. Sasser about her novel, Gradle Bird, on this Desideratum. Desideratum is a Latin word. It means things that are desired as essential. This podcast celebrates storytelling as essential. I'm audiobook narrator Teresa Bakken showcasing the talents of my author and narrator friends. I hope you'll hear an artist you love, or find your next favorite wordsmith.
1: I'm like in a cabin, and it's pretty dark in here. Let me um, move this... I don't know if this will help. Let me move this
0: lamp. This is author JC, or Jana, Sasser. We met on Zoom to talk about her novel, Gradle Bird.
1: There's just a lot of grain. Do you feel that way?
0: Yes, you do. You look sort of hazy. You could be a ghost. (laughs) Yes, maybe we should leave it that way. (laughs) Ghosts and characters being haunted is something we'll talk more about in a minute. First, I wanted to tell you this story has an incredible cast of characters. The title character is a 16-year-old girl named Gradle who's being raised by her grandfather. Then there's a teenage boy named Sonny Joe who is a Siamese fighting fish connoisseur. And Delvis Miles is a professional dumpster diver, a genius musician whose mental health makes him both fragile and fierce. But let's start with Jana herself. I think you'll agree she's as intriguing as any of her characters.
1: I grew up in the tradition of storytelling Surrounded by some really great storytellers, and I think that's really where my love of story came from. Um, I remember I had uh, my grandmother, she used to tell me the story about spitting in her brother's face because he wouldn't let her have a Coca Cola, and it's like the simplest story. But the way that she told it, I would always, when she would finish telling me the story, I would say, Tell it again and she'd tell it again. And um, so I just love to hear stories. And I did a lot of, I, I used to walk around with a tape recorder also quite a bit as a child, as well as an adult and record people telling stories. So I have a lot of recordings of my grandmother telling me stories about her childhood and you know living through the depression and and then I have a lot of um recordings of my father telling j- just all kinds of of stories. so I think uh, in terms of my writing, my love of stories began with the oral tradition of storytelling
0: yes so it's funny you just brought up listening to stories from older times? Because one of the questions I had was, where are we in time in this story?
1: Say like late 80s, early 90s. Um, the novel is set, you know, during my time when I was a teenager. Okay. But I think though a lot of people ask me that question because I'm from a very, very small town that the growth rate has been basically flat <laughs> for decades. So it's a very, it's a town that feels like you've kind of walked back in time.
0: Yes. There is something timeless about your storytelling here. I guess, so these voices that you grew up hearing, are there ways that those storytellers find themselves in your characters? Do you hear their voices in some of your characters or are these unique, came out of your head people in this story?
1: Well, some of the characters were based off of people that I actually knew or some people that I saw and imagined what they may be like. But I would say like the majority of everything that I write is pretty deeply um rooted in you know reality and so I will typically take inspiration from my life or my experiences and then try as much as possible to distill the truth using fiction Mm -hmm. Um, because I think it's really difficult, you know, as you're going through life and you have an experience, you don't really know what the, you know, the truth or the essence of that experience is until you've had many years to contemplate it. And so I think with fiction, you're able to, in a very short amount of time, distill an experience down to something that's, you know, really truthful very quickly. Mm. Um, So that's what I love about fiction.
0: Yes. And you do really take some large truths and try to distill them in these pages um, I think you have the first thing that I noticed was that there were themes of abandonment mm-hmm. with several different characters and how they move forward from that abandonment, even in your settings. They also feel kind of abandoned. Where do you think that came from? Why was that an important part of the, both the characters and the places felt sort of abandoned?
1: I think it's what sparks my imagination. So uh, when I was, you know, growing up, we would, my like my dad and I, we would just ride down dirt roads and find abandoned houses. And my dad was paralyzed, but so he couldn't like, you know, walk through them with me. But I would get out of his van and just go explore uh, you know these abandoned houses, and you know I think growing up in rural Georgia, that that's a huge part of the landscape are abandoned houses, abandoned structures, and so for me, you know anything broken or abandoned, um, it sparks my imagination, and I find it very mysterious and. Um, you know, I just have this yearning to want to know, you know, why was it abandoned or, you know, why was it left to, you know, rot or so I, I think it's just something that I just am really attracted to.
0: It does allow you to fill in the story, right? If you see something that's that's abandoned, you can you can backtrack in your mind and think why and what was there and who was there. Right. That's such an interesting story, though, from your childhood that your your father, even without full mobility, would be like, "Sure, go and let's check that out. Let's explore that."
1: He was a he um, was quite the character. I remember one time when um, when I was real little, he took me to a slaughterhouse, a, a pig a pig slaughterhouse, and there was a sow that had just had babies. And so he said, he said, OK, baby, he says, you go out there and you pick you out a pig. And so I climbed the fence and took a little baby pig from one of the, the cells, and we took her home and raised her. And so he was he was a pretty wild, wild, wild guy.
0: <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. Okay, let's pause right here in our chat with Jana and listen to a few minutes from the novel. So throughout this story, there are three characters who commit serious crimes with dire consequences. You're going to hear a scene from near the beginning of the book that starts in a grocery store with a confrontation. It gives you some backstory or history for one of the characters. This is from... Gradle Bird, written by J.C. Sasser, published by Kohler Books. Although there were only four cars in the lot, the store was packed with more people than four cars could hold. She pulled a shopping buggy from the inventory and dodged huddles of people who had no business being there except to escape the heat. They asked the butcher questions that had nothing to do with meat and browsed the aisles with empty buggies while their barefooted children, with black-bottomed feet, cooled their faces and armpits with the produce sprinklers. When she passed these people, they stopped what they were doing and stared. Whispers followed, and mothers drew their children into their hips before she passed by. She was a stranger in this town, and by the way they acted, she was the strangest stranger they'd ever seen. She hurried down the aisles and threw seven cans of SpaghettiOs and a jar each of Creamy Jiff and Smucker's Concord grape in her buggy. She grabbed a sleeve of Wonder White, broke into it, and shoved a slice of bread down her throat before she nested it in the buggy's baby seat. In the toiletry section, she grabbed a value pack of Schick disposables and a bottle of White Rain— that could double as shampoo and shaving cream to clean up all of Grandpa's hairs. She tossed them in the buggy, marched toward the first aid section, and grabbed a box of Band-Aids for Grandpa's blisters. She did the math in her head and came up short. $12 wouldn't buy what they needed for the week, nor would there be any left for a stamp to mail her letter to Delvis Miles. She looked around, but there were too many people staring. She mazed through the aisles until she found one that was empty and shoved the box of Band-Aids down her underwear. Gradle waited, wide-legged in line at the cash register, while an old man, gaunt as a needle and dressed in a woman's blouse, stood at the counter buying a bag of rice, unable to decipher a nickel from a dime. As he handed the cashier his money, the butcher yanked Gradle by the arm, Shame on you, he said. His fingernails dug into her bones, and his cockroach-colored eyes turned skinny. I saw you, so don't lie to me. I have money, she said, reached into her bra, and showed the butcher the bills. The photograph parachuted to the ground and landed atop the butcher's bloody shoe. She snatched up the photograph and put it back inside her bra. The butcher got into her face. The overhead light shone on his bald head in a spot where she could see her reflection. Exodus 2014 says, Thou shalt not steal. He shook her arm. How should I punish you? Let God decide her punishment. The voice was familiar and came from the next line over. Seath limped toward Gradle with one hand clutching his cane and the other his Bible, a bandage stained with old blood wrapped around his forearm. "'St. Matthew, chapter 7, verse 1, says, "'Judge not, that ye not be judged,' Seath said. He paused and let the butcher take in the scripture. "'In all due respect, butcher.' He nodded at the man and nudged his tam hat forward. The butcher looked down at Seath's Bible and let go of Gradle's arm. He wiped his hands on his slaughter stained apron. Give me your money and what you stole, and don't ever step foot in here again. She slapped her money into his palm, lifted up her skirt, and removed the band aids from her underwear. Here, she said. She threw the band aids at his chest. She pushed her buggy through the pig's sucking doors into the heat and hid around the corner so nobody could stare at her anymore and where she could cry in peace if she wanted. A tapping sound that started off small grew closer and louder, and soon Seath rounded the corner and stood beside her. He took off his hat and removed the two slices of bread sitting on his head, He pulled a package of bologna from inside his vest, made a sandwich, and as he took his first bite, he extended his good leg, shook his pants, and a shiny red apple fell to his toe. If you're gonna steal, you need to learn from a real thief, he said, kicking the apple toward Gradle. He crammed the sandwich in his mouth and chased it down with a bottle of milk he retrieved from the cinch of his belt. The trick is... He said, his dime sized mouth covered in white. Steal what you can get by on. You steal more than that, you become a glutton. It was only a pack of band aids, Gradle said. He pulled a cigarette from behind his ear. God don't like greed, he said, lit his match one handed, and blew a cylinder of smoke through his mouth. What does God think about throwing firecrackers at a crazy man's house and making him kill his dog on account of it, she asked. He don't like it. How do you forgive yourself for all the stuff God doesn't like? I pray a lot, Seath said. Why do you do it in the first place? For Sonny Joe's sake, he said. He took a puff of cigarette. How do you worship him so much? He saved my life, and I'm gonna save his. How'd he save your life? She asked. She took a bite of the stolen red apple and listened as Seath told her his history. When Seath was 12, he left Cape Girardeau, Missouri for good, with nothing but a funeral preacher's Bible and a wad of graveyard dirt in his hands five minutes after they lowered his parents in the ground. Seath asked the preacher if he could borrow his Bible and told the man that if what had just happened to his parents was because of the way, the light, and the truth, he wanted to learn all there was to learn about it. After the preacher gave him his Bible, Seath walked to the crossroad where a local work train had T-boned his parents' car, and he flipped into the next junker hauling scrap metal and lumber out of town. When a dirty-faced hobo, with glowing white eyes, sitting in a dark corner of the boxcar, asked him where he was headed, he raised his Bible and told the man, Eden. It took him a year on the rails to find his Eden, but eventually he arrived in the warm, fecund South he had read about in the various libraries he frequented to escape bad weather but more so to fulfill his honest desire to improve his mind. In the writings of Ralph Waldo Emerson, he learned the South was a place settled by those in search of religious hope, who saw its alluring fertility as a garden where mankind could begin again. The South was the agrarian ideal, a place where a good American could thrive on a small little farm— where one could benefit from the purity of nature and escape the city's temptations. Since he was a man of the Bible, who wrote scripture on every wall in every boxcar in which he flopped, what he read all appealed to him. It was the place where he could find a church. It was the place where he could become a preacher. And it was the place where he jumped from a fast-moving train and broke his left leg. This was the place that crippled him for life, which only confirmed his belief the South was where he should be. For three days, he crawled belly down with nothing to eat or drink until he finally gave out, his face buried in the white sand of a black river's bank, his dry and cracked lips a mere foot from the nourishment the river would provide. He lost grip of his Bible and shriveled there for a couple of days, until Sonny Joe came to the same river's bank, sent there by his voodoo witch mother on a mission to find freshwater mollusk shells for a concoction that would bring her good fortune. He kicked Seath a time or two, and a couple of more times for good measure, and one more time after that just for the hell of it. Sonny Joe took him for dead, until he rolled Seath over and saw white grains of sand fall from Seath's lips when he attempted to mouth the word, Angel. Sonny Joe left the shells on the sand, flopped Seath over his shoulder, and brought him to the abandoned church in the woods, where he nursed him to health with one of his mama's potions that was known to steal away ills. It was Sonny Joe who splinted Seath's leg. It was Sonny Joe who whittled his cane. And it was Sonny Joe who stayed by his side, cradled his head in his lap every night and loved him as if Seath was now his mission. I owe him, Seath said. For me, um, this theme of abandonment and an addiction and cruelty are there like this undercurrent. And yet really, when someone asked me like, well, what is it about? I was like, oh, love. So that is a really interesting balancing act. So how do you, how do you see those things working together in your storytelling?
1: Well, I mean, with, with Gradle Bird, I think, you know, one of the questions that I really was interested in exploring was um, why is it in our nature to ostracize or ridicule um, the weak and the different? Mm -hmm. And because I do, I mean, I do feel like that, that is an aspect of our, of our nature that is, um, it's there. And, you know, I also think a lot about just the rest of the animal kingdom. I mean, obviously, we're animals. Animals do the same thing. Um, You know, they if 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 there's a, you know, a weakling in the group, they usually die. They're, you know, they're ostracized. They're abandoned. So it's just something that I really um, I really wanted to explore human cruelty Um, and how human cruelty can be you know overcome with
0: love yeah yeah that's so I'm so glad you brought up this idea of weakness and frailty because you play with that in so many different ways Um, you have one of your characters engages in fighting fish yes Mm -hmm. it's a really like compelling scene in the book and this concept of these fish that are so fragile and delicate, but are also fierce and territorial. And um, I just, where did that come from? Where did that idea even come from to weave that in?
1: I don't know where the idea came from, where Sonny Joe earned money from fighting fish. I had stumbled upon Siamese fighting fish or beta fish. And I just started doing some research about it. And my, well, he's now my husband, but my boyfriend at the time, I convinced him to um, go to the local Walmart and get a couple of fighting fish and actually put them together and see what they would do. Mm. And We each got our fish, which we named, and we put them together. And it was like probably one of the most beautiful, poetic processes that I've ever witnessed. Now, we did not let them fight each other to their deaths, but we definitely watched the whole process. And I mean, they change colors. They, you know, bloom. They wrap around each other in this like just really beautiful dance. And then it just kind of gets like really vicious. But it's in their
0: nature to do that. (laughs) So that's where that came from. It was really something I'd never read about before. I mean, I think somewhere in the periphery of my mind, I knew that beta Fish, that that was a thing. Right. It's interesting to me that you actually recreated a scene so that so that you could watch it unfold because I think you get that sense as you're reading it that you're there with Gradle watching. And it's, um, I don't know. I also just liked that you chose an animal that was inherently fragile so the other sort of symbolism I was going to ask you about was you use you use moonflowers and hawk moths a lot. Mm-hmm. They weave their way, they're in the house. What for you what did those represent? Why did you why did you write them into the story?
1: I think a large part of like why I used the moonflower was because it's it's a flower that um you know it only blooms at night and it only has one night to live and the minute the sun touches it it dies um so i just thought that was you know it's just a really poetic thing and you know the hawk moth actually pollinates the moonflower yes and i don't know i i just i'm i'm constant i'm fascinated by nature how we interact with nature. I I think, you know, a lot of times we think that we are not nature. Um, We're outside of nature, that nature is just, you know, something that's out there and we're not part of it, but we're so much.
0: Yes. Well, again, it was something that I like. I'm familiar with morning glories, different flowers that have different bloom cycles, right? And, um, and also just how fragile, again, like how fragile they are and,
1: and they're poisonous. I, that's that's another thing too. The um you know the like Annalise the the ghost in the story when she committed suicide that is how she committed suicide is cuz you know they're they're highly toxic flowers and the seeds are extremely toxic. So
0: yes, it was something really fragile, really lovely but fierce. Yes. Yes. I loved your descriptions of them. It made me go to the internet and look them up. I wanted to see, I wanted to visually see them after reading about how you wrote about them. So you just mentioned Annalise, you do have a ghost in this story. Are ghost stories part of your, just part of your, the history of the oral storytelling that you're aware of? Like when I got to that point, I was like, oh, oh, it's an actual ghost. (laughs) Like we start that chapter and you think it's a person in the house, you know you do this great thing where you the reader's not sure
1: uh, so most definitely, um my my mother, you know, my mother is she's she's pretty practical. And so whenever you know she tells she tells me the story of this ghost called Christchurch Ghost. And again, she's like the most practical. <laughs> person. So when you hear a ghost story from somebody who's extremely practical and pretty, you know, down to earth, it's fascinating. Um so I I definitely grew up around ghost stories. I love to be haunted. And um I think, you know, with all of the all of the characters in Gradlebird, I kind of see them all as, you know, haunted souls. Mm. And whether they're, you know, depending on what stage of evolution they are in, you know, you know, we're all essentially souls, and some, you know, some souls don't have, you know, flesh and blood body, but I, I do believe that we are all evolving, you know, and a and to something, you know, much more powerful and greater than we could ever imagine. Um, but yeah, I love ghost stories. (laughs) Ghosts seem to wind up in the majority of my, of my stories, of my fiction.
0: Yeah. I like what you just said about each one of the characters is haunted in some way, is, um, is visited in some way by something from their past, which I think that is really part of our evolution. That gets back to what you said at the very beginning about how we're, it's when we look back on things that we go, oh, Right. I was working through that. I was needing to work through that. Yes.
1: Yeah, and you don't know, you don't know the answer or why or you know why did it happen that way or yeah. Um, but I feel like we're just all very connected, and I you know I believe that everything happens by design.
0: Hmm. Well, so one of the characters in the book has a really interesting way of communicating. Um, his writing, and you you actually achieved that in a font in the book, where he has this combination of capitals and lower cases. Um, he's very artistic. He has kind of a bombastic style. He's a musician. When I got to the part of the book where you include his lyrics, they were very poetic. And I wondered I wondered if you had a tune for them in your head as you wrote them, like if you could hear him playing and how it would how they would sound
1: okay well um so Delvis is based off of a real person from my childhood um a man named Evans Miles who uh, when I was I don't know like maybe 12 or so who I befriended he was you know just this he was awesome. But he, you know, he lived out in the country in a shack. He had no run of water, no electricity. Um, And he, he had some form of mental illness. I don't exactly know, you know, what it was completely. So the real man, Evans Miles, he was a musician. This is how I actually got to know him. He had made, my mother was the tax commissioner. in in my hometown. And he would go up and visit her at the tax office. And one time she came home, she said, yeah, Evans Miles came and visited me today. And he brought me this cassette tape. And I didn't know who Evans Miles was at the time. And so I I asked if I could listen to the cassette tape. And so I went out and gotten her white cutlass supreme and put the tape in the tape deck and listen to this man play his guitar and his music. And so I spent I don't know a couple hours out there almost ran the battery dead but I went inside and I said I've got to meet this guy. I've got to meet him. So I asked her where he lived and she told me he lived out by the Rosemary Church and so at 12 I got in her car and I drove and I found his house and um, <laughs> I told him I was like I gotta I, I want to write a book about you one day and I again walked out there with my little tape recorder you know and I interviewed him and uh had him play music so the music that's except one song there's one song that I made up but the music that is in the novel are Evans Miles's lyrics
0: wow
1: so for Songs that he made up.
0: That's remarkable. (laughs) That is not the answer I was expecting at all. That you were 12 and that you found this person who was a composer, who was an artist in this way, and that you and that moment of your childhood, that preteen window before we become adults, thought this is going to make its way into a story. I love that.
1: Yeah, we were very very good friends and um I mean he was like in his late 50s maybe even early 60s when we had, you know, our friendship. But um he he always knew I was going to write a book about him. I mean, we would write letters. So I have a ton of his letters when I moved to California, he would write letters and mail them out there. And I, when I came back to Georgia, I'd go visit him. And so he always knew that I was writing, you know, going to write a book about him. But of course, you know, it took years and, um, he actually died before the publication of Gradle Bird. And I so wish that he, he could have been alive and he could have gone on a book tour with me with his music.
0: I love that it's real music. Um, I wanted to ask you too about he uses the phrase real true friend, uh huh. So, is that actually part of this real person as well?
1: Yes, so he, um, the real man Evans Miles, because of his circumstances and, you know, kind of where he lived and his uh, mental state, it invited a lot of ridicule and a lot of people made fun of him. People would go out to his house and harass him, like, you know, throw beer bottles at his house, um, just to get to be entertained, really, but to get a rise out of him. And so when I was um, when I was coming up, I I always thought I was like, you know, one of these days, one of these jokes is going to go really, really wrong in, in real life. Thank God nothing ever terrible did happen. Um, but it was definitely something that I wanted to exploit in the novel um, that you know, you've, there are dire consequences, you know, to our actions. Um, but anyway, so when, whenever we would write letters back and forth, he would always say in his letters, you're always a real true friend. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of part of, you know, his way, I think of saying, you know, thank you for being my, my friend, um, you know, a genuine friend. Yeah. Um, so yes, that that came from the real man.
0: Um, the other thing that threads through for me, and actually, literally, I think you begin on the very first page and then almost in the last few pages, you have um, a biblical reference to Corinthians. And part of it you talked about a minute ago when you were saying how we focus on the weak or how human nature is, is confounded. That's the word that's in, it's, that's in Corinthians, that the foolish confound the wise and that the weak confound the mighty. How for you did that scripture reading or that message thread through or underpin this story?
1: I mean, I think it pretty much sums up the entire novel. Um, We make a lot of assumptions, you know, about people and who they are. And um, we're, you know, a lot of times really wrong. Mm. And so I just felt like that, that scripture just really summed up, um, you know, the novel and and how we perceive others and, um, you know, what those who we perceive are you know weaker than us or different, what they can, you know teach us.
0: Yes, yes, what we have to learn. You also really circle around the Christian idea of forgiveness. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, that was a really big theme in the novel because, and like guilt, I think, is an emotion that we place on ourselves. I mean, it can really cripple us. And every character throughout the story, this places is just extreme guilt on themselves. And I found it really fun to explore how each of those characters resolved that guilt. Like, for example, you know, Delvis, I think he had probably the purest, healthiest relationship with guilt that any of you know the so- so-called normal people in the book um did but uh I definitely think that you know guilt and then f- forgiveness um is obviously like the antithesis of that how we basically resolve you know our own guilt within ourselves or forgive others for wronging us so yeah I mean that's a a huge theme in the in the novel.
0: That was sort of a culmination to me of how you had taken these Christian messages and really wove them into a a modern allegorical. You know, all of your characters sort of having these representations of forgiveness, and um, it was really good. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, was there anything that I that you like to talk about when people talk to you about Gradleboard that I didn't ask you that you want to talk about?
1: I just hope that people who do read the novel, um, my hope is, is that you know they will turn inward and contemplate, you know, their own actions toward people who are different or not like them, and just you know really just keep a an open mind to to people who just aren't like you
0: yeah well the last question i usually end with has to do with the name of the podcast um desideratum is a latin word and it means things that are desired as essential and it comes from a poem actually that was called desiderata and my parents had it hanging in my house when I was growing up, and I've been hanging up for my kids, and it's full of sort of life lessons of, it covers all kinds of things, love, and forgiveness, and vanity, and um, so I like to ask authors, for you, if someone asks you, well, what is most essential? How do you answer that question?
1: Well, for me, I mean, personally, I think, you know, the thing that is most essential for me is um, seeking to know God. Hmm. That is, uh, I think, <laughs> you know, what I was put on put on the face of the earth to do is just to continue to seek the absolute truth, um, which, you know, I'm not sure here on earth i'll i'll ever be able to to find completely but it's it's essential to you know who i am and um who i am as a writer and um who i am as a person really um is just that constant search for the absolute truth
0: yes the light the truth the way
1: Yes, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a really that's a very profound answer. <laughs> and I think it's so funny when we when we're wondering as humans what our purpose is, right? When we get to a certain age and we start wondering what our purpose is, that should root you down. That's a good answer, seeking the truth.
1: Yeah. It's never ending. I mean, it is like a constant. Constant, which again I think that's you know
0: by design yeah and I think too the funny thing about that seeking is that well you could turn to the Bible you could turn to written word for answers but really so many of the answers to me come through other people yes how we move along on our path towards understanding, Is so often the guideposts, the guideposts are the people that were put in your path, right?
1: Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What we have to learn from each other. I think you've done that so much in your storytelling that they're all learning and growing from each other. They all are necessary to each other. I want to thank Jana for sharing this music. This is her recording of the real Evans Miles, singing When the Whippoorwills Holler at Night. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Jana as much as I did, and that listening to a few minutes of Gradle Bird made you want to hear more. A very special thank you to the Pat Conroy Literary Center in South Carolina for shining a light on J.C. Sasser's storytelling and leading me right to her. And as always, thank you for being here. Thank you for listening.